And it shall be, if thou do at all, forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day, that ye shall surely perish. Acts 20, 7-9, and then may I ask all to stand up as we read God's word together. We find an interesting story in these three verses, and so let's read from verse 7, together out loud. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber, where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep, And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. You may now take your seats. Perfect, thank you. So here we have an interesting story of this young man named Eutychus. Now at that time, Paul was a phenomenal teacher, a phenomenal preacher, and everybody was excited to hear and listen to the Apostle Paul. And so Eutychus, I assume the same about him. But then he didn't realize how long Paul preached. It says over here that Paul preached and he kept going until midnight. So no matter how excited excited Eutychus may have been to hear this apostle preach, it's kind of hard to fight off his need to sleep. Paul preaching until midnight, even I would struggle. I think most of us here would struggle. We find here in the story that he was so deep in sleep that he ended up falling out the window. Now, I used to kind of tease one of my friends that we used to always call him Eutychus because of how often he would fall asleep as well. But here, we see a man named Eutychus, and his name means fortunate. And it wasn't quite fortunate what happened to him, falling off a window. But the story ended positively in that Eutychus survived. Now, most everybody here likes if not, loves sleeping. It's one of the things that we look forward to every day, at least for myself, and I'm sure many of you guys look forward to sleep as well. But there are times when sleeping is probably not the best course of action. I think of one of the, my dumbest places that I've fallen asleep was behind the wheel. I was driving home from work. Uh, we just finished the first day of filming for the VBS, and I was in this intersection, and it's this really trafficy intersection. And so because I'm a genius, I had this awesome idea. What if I kept one eye open on the traffic and one eye closed so that I can sleep? And this was working for a couple of minutes. I was actually falling, I was actually keeping up with the traffic and going to sleep. But what ended up happening is this eye started to close more and more as the time passed by. And eventually, I fell asleep behind the wheel. And you know, I probably would have taken a nice nap in that car at that spot if a girl didn't start banging on my window. And then I woke up, obviously, to that banging on the window. And then the cops obviously turned their lights on and told me to pull over. And they were nice about it. They thought that I was uh, using some substances that I shouldn't have. But I just told them that I was coming off from work. Now, that is a very inappropriate time to fall asleep. It's behind the wheel. But another time, guess what? During a sermon. Falling asleep during a sermon. 
First of all, as preachers, we see everybody. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we see, you know, who, those who those off, and we at times we understand. Now, I'm sure that even the best of the best Christians have fallen asleep once or twice in their lives. However, there are two types of people who normally sleep during a sermon. Number one, there are those who are outwardly asleep. You could say the bobbleheads. You can kind of see their head bobbling like this. Those are the first type. And a lot of times, you know, we understand them. Sometimes they're coming home from a long day at work, a long shift at work, and they fall asleep and they were trying to fight it off, but they couldn't, like Eutychus. But here is the greater issue, actually, is the second type of people who fall asleep during a sermon. Those who are inwardly asleep. Those who are inwardly asleep. Their eyes may be open. Their ears may be receiving what is being said in the pulpit. Their gaze and their focus may be set on the preacher. But inwardly, they're no better off than the guy dozing off physically. Yes, there are a handful of people who physically fall asleep in church. But I believe there's a greater deal of men and women who are spiritually asleep. Now this is one common problem that I believe plagues a great deal of Christians, not just, not just in our country, but I believe globally. I believe all churches have this common problem. And I believe in spe- specifically in first world countries. If you think about it, in third world countries, especially if you live in a place where worship is not allowed, it is already a huge sacrifice to attend a service. And so if you take that sacrifice and you go to that service, in a third world country, you're more likely to just listen to the preacher. You're not going to doze off. You're not going to start, start thinking about random things. But in a third world country where, where worship is not a, a liberty, they would focus on the preacher. But in first world countries, it's a blessing for us to always be able to go to church, to listen to sermons. But because we listen to sermons so frequently, we're so accustomed to listening that we end up tuning out. We fall asleep spiritually. We listen to the words of the sermon. Some of us may be sitting upright, perfect stance, our eyes never straying away from the speaker. Yet internally, internally we are somewhere far away in our thoughts. Some may be thinking about what they're going to be eating for dinner. Some may be thinking about the game that they left on pause at home. Some people may be thinking about the, 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 the score for the sports game that they're keeping up with. When something is fully captivating and has our full interest, we don't fall asleep. A sports fan who watches their favorite sport, especially if it's a championship game like the Super Bowl, they're not falling asleep. They're on the couch, leaning forward, and sometimes even in, in combat sports like Manny Pacquiao fights, if you've ever been in, in one of those, all the Titos are standing up. No one's, no one's falling asleep on the couch. Everybody's standing up, paying attention to Manny Pacquiao. When something has our, cap, our, our full interest, we're not falling asleep. We see this with people when, we, when they watch movies they love. They're looking at every single plot point. They're looking at every single twist. 
And so when we fall asleep, when we inwardly fall asleep during a sermon, it means one thing. God's word is not captivating our heart and it doesn't have our full interest. A year and a half ago, I read a compilation of sermons, uh, of a bunch of Puritan sermons. And the reason why I bought the book in the first place was to read Jonathan Edwards' uh, famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. But there was a sermon in that compilation that really stood out to me, even more so than Jonathan Edwards' sermon. And this preacher titled it, Carnal Security. Carnal Security. And the thrust of his message was to declare that most Christians in his day, and I believe in our day, are walking complacently. There's no urgency in how we act and serve. A lack of urgency can be quite frustrating. The reason why I never liked group projects in high school is, theoretically, you're given a huge project, a large project, and the theory is each member pitches in and does 25% of the work. But what happens all the time in group projects in high school? There's one guy who does everything because the other members, no matter how many times you ask them, have you done your portion of the thing, they act like the deadline is next year. They're not acting in urgency. And it can be, you can see that lack of urgency in certain situations can be quite frustrating. And you could see how some people might be frustrated with the general lack of urgency within believers. Now something that I wanted to declare is that no one in this room is exempt from spiritually falling asleep. Not the staff, not the senior and junior members, not the volunteers and leaders of different ministries, not just the normal churchgoers. Everybody in this room could potentially fall asleep spiritually. The reason why is because our apathy, our disinterest, it grows subconsciously. It grows unnoticed because it is so easy for us to feed our disinterest without even thinking about it. So how do we feed our disinterest? When we, stop, when we start consuming less of the, uh, the less of the word and we start consuming more of the world. That's when we are starting to feed our disinterest. The more world we consume, the more disinterested we become of spiritual things. You can't have the best of both worlds. You can't have the world at all. A world filled with sleepy Christians. That's my title, a sleepy Christian. If you take a world filled with a bunch of sleepy Christians, they will not accomplish much. They will not accomplish much locally. They will not accomplish much nationally. They will not accomplish much globally. Sleepy Christians will not do much for the Lord. The quality of Christians is more important than the quantity. Jesus, out of all the multitudes who followed him, and he had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of uh, Israelites who followed him throughout his ministry, out of all of those people, how many people did he choose to follow, be his disciple? Twelve. With the exception of Judas, this small band of believers were able to spread the gospel throughout the then-known world. Eleven zealous Christians was, were, were able to change and alter the spiritual landscape 
of the neighboring nations of Israel. Eleven. Eleven zealous Christians. There's a popular youth conference song that we sing every year. It's always led by Brother Charles. I'm alive, alert, awake, enthusiastic. I'm alive, alert, awake, enthusiastic. I'm alive, alert, awake. I'm awake, alert, alive. I'm alive, alert, awake, enthusiastic. And Brother Charles uses that to wake up the teens because a lot of times we're, they're a bit groggy. But that's exactly what the world needs, though. Not just in a service to be alive, alert, awake, and enthusiastic, but in, when we're outside in the world, I think we should be alive, alert, awake, and enthusiastic. So how can we know? How can you know if you're sitting here today and if you've, and if you've spiritually dozed off, if you're spiritually asleep? What are the signs? Before we get into my two points, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. I know I am not worthy to be your vessel, but I pray that you just fill me with your spirit and allow me to preach your word uninhibited. And I just pray that you also help me to preach your message with gentleness and with love. And I pray, Lord, that, I, that you would lead me as I, as I preach your word, Lord. I pray this all in your name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier in the intro, Physical sleep is amazing for us. It is an essential part of life. How much sleep you get at night will significantly affect the quality of the following day. And we've met a couple of people, probably in your life, where they say, oh, I only need four hours to sleep. I only need three hours to sleep to survive. But that's the thing. They only need three hours of sleep to survive the next day. They don't thrive. Those people who say that they only need three hours of sleep, the following day they're like crawling along. They don't have any energy. The more sleep we get, the better we'll function the next morning. We know that. Sleep deficiency linked to many health problems, and studies show that. However, as children, I believe some of us can relate here, many of us hated sleeping. I, for one, hated napping. I hated going to sleep. And the reason why is because as, a, as children, all we did was play. Yes, we had homework, but that took like about an hour to do. The rest of the day was spent playing games, uh, playing with your friends, etc. And so to go to sleep, it meant that you had to stop playing. It meant you had to put life, the fun part of life, on pause. But as adults, we love and we crave sleep. Even right now, as I stand here, I'm already thinking about sleep as well. <laughs> After a long, exhausting day, Nothing compares, you know, that feeling of laying down on a cold pillow, that soft, cold pillow, and then you have a warm blanket on top. Nothing compares to that feeling. I personally love sleep, and I know many of you do as well. And another benefit of sleep is when we are dozing off, we forget all about our work. We forget, we forget about everything that stresses us out. We forget about all of our responsibilities naturally. The moment we, make, make, the moment we uh, wake up, there's a chance that those stresses will come back to, to bother us. But as long as we're deep in sleep, we're not thinking about work. We're not thinking about our responsibilities. And most of us, though we don't remember them, are dreaming, are off in dreamland. And this is my first point of the night. A sleepy Christian forgets his work. 
a sleepy Christian forgets his work. This is the first attribute of those who are asleep spiritually. Just like how a person doesn't think of work when they're physically sleeping, a sleepy Christian doesn't think about the Lord's work when he's spiritually dozed off. And instead, he's entertaining his own dreams. Sometimes when, we, when life goes on, we, com- we completely forget about what God wants from us. He wants us to have a relationship with Him. He wants us to serve Him in what ways that we can. He wants us to tell others about His Son. He gives every believer His general will things that we do, that we can do to serve Him. And when you find yourself putting your own dreams on a pedestal, you're entertaining and feeding your own dreams and pursuing those more than you are pursuing God, there's a problem. There's a heart problem within you. You might be thinking, hold on, it's, it is God's will. I know that it is God's will for me to pursue this career. I know that it is God's will for me to do well and try hard in school. I know it is God's will for me to work hard and, and earn money so that I can uh, complete college in my next part of life. I know that's God's will for my life. Maybe it is. Maybe God's will is for you to put some time into that job, into that work. But I do know that it is definitely not God's will for you to neglect Him. It's not God's will for anybody to completely forget about Him. It's not a sin to have personal goals and ambitions. With, and behind my computer, I have a list of goals that I have. Five-year goals, ten-year goals, and lifetime goals. And those goals aren't sinful in and of themselves. But when my life pursuit is trying to fulfill those goals and not focusing on serving God and, his, and, and doing the Lord's work, there's a, there's a, there's a sin there. There's a problem there. And there's a perfect passage that details this. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. And since it's a lengthier passage, just follow along with me as I read it. So Deuteronomy 8. And we'll be starting in verse 10. So Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. And I'll begin and just follow along. And please uh, really look at what is being told in these verses and what, what, what God is telling the Israelites. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments, and his judgments, and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses, and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, 
who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And verse 19, And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. That was a powerful passage. Incredibly convicting. And that was detailing uh, the, the, the situation of the Israelites. But it describes so well the mentality that so many of us have. The moments our lives become stable. The moments our personal assets and materials start thriving and growing. Like the Israelites, we start forgetting that everything that God has done for us, we forget that it was God who gave us those blessings. It was God who blessed us with those things. We forget all about our loving God and we start pursuing the false idols that we've raised up. There may be a day in the future where you have, that you would build up a comfortable life. Maybe you'll have enough money to pay for all of your necessities and even have money to buy some of the things that you want. Maybe you'll get to a point where you'll have savings stored up, a great amount of savings stored up. Maybe you'll have a good place to live, a reputable position at work, and everything else about your life is going well. Your life is stable and you are thriving. Please don't make the mistake of accrediting that success to yourself. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me to this wealth. Is it really our power? Is it really the might of our hands that have allowed us to experience these blessings? Because it isn't. Understand, God was the one who gave it to you. And because it was God who blessed you with those things, please do not forget about God's will, the work that God has for us. Because though you may have abundant gain, as, as described in this passage, this person has money, has and flocks, and everything about his life is, is going well. But when you forget about the Lord, Lord God, as it says in verse 19, what does it say in the latter part? What, what, how does verse 19 end? What are the words? Ye shall surely perish. That is the result of forgetting God. This doesn't necessarily mean that if you forget God, He'll strike you down and kill you. Not necessarily, but you'll perish in other ways. Matthew Henry, the commentator, said, those that follow others in sin will certainly follow them to destruction. 
If we do as sinners do, we must expect to fare as sinners fare. We see sinners, they, they live their own life. And their life is covered with, with such uh, bad situation. Like you, you can always see them complaining about their life. And they're just having a hard time. Though they have material gain, their life is not, doesn't have peace. And if you do as the sinners do, expect to have a similar result to them. No peace, no joy. That is the result of forgetting God. That is the first point. If you, for, you are forgetting God's work, that is a sign, a huge sign, that you are spiritually asleep. Let us all spiritually wake up and not neglect the Lord's work. And my second and final point is the sleepy Christian has their five senses bound up. The sleepy Christian has their five senses bound up. When we're asleep, the way our body works is they minimize, our, our senses get minimized in the sense that they're not fully operating. They're only lightly operating. When we are in deep sleep, what happens is the rest of the body remains relatively inactive while the brain goes into some sort of repair mode, repairing everything that needs to be repaired in our body. And so one of the things that goes inactive is our senses. And this is proven by my example. For example. Uh, I'm a deep sleeper, and when I'm in deep sleep, you could do a lot of things to me, and I wouldn't notice. You know, you could go right up to my ear, you could start insulting me and mocking me and saying everything that you hate about me. Guess what? I wouldn't get mad because I didn't hear you. You can wave a perfectly well-cooked medium-rare steak right in front of my nose. Seasoned to perfection by Brother Andre. You can wave that right in front of my nose and guess what? I am not going to budge because I can't smell it. I'm asleep. You could even put a small piece in my mouth and I'm not going to taste it. Why? Because I'm asleep. You can flash a bright flashlight at my eyes, and it may have damage, I don't know. But you can flash a bright light at my eyes, and I'm not going to wince. Why? Because I am asleep. You can tickle me for a few seconds. I'm not going to wake up, because I'm asleep. I don't feel it. Many of the things that I would usually strongly react to when awake, I don't react to at all when I'm asleep, because our senses are minimized. They're bound up. They're not fully operating. For me to wake up, you would have to overload my senses. Instead of tickling me, you'll have to give me a right hook to my face. Instead of just waving a uh, uh, medium rare steak, you've got you to shove it up, uh, up my nose. Then that'll wake me up. You can pour water over me. That'll wake me up. You have to overload the senses to get a sleeping person to wake up. Because otherwise, their senses are bound up. Similarly, our spiritual senses, you could say, get bound up when we are spiritually asleep. And as I go through these five senses, question yourself and see whether or, you're, whether or not your life mirrors these points. And the first sense is taste. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I'll, read, I'll read, out, read out this verse with me, actually. Psalm 119, verses, uh, just verse 103. So Psalm 119, 103, let's read it out loud. 
How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Ask yourself this, how sweet are God's words and promises to you? When you hear of a promise that you can claim today as a Christian, do you get excited? Like Romans 8.28, for example, do you get excited by that promise? Does his words, does the words of the Bible, the promises and his commands, does his words, does God's word taste pleasant to you? Do you react well to it? Or is your palate craving the taste of the world? We know that the flavor of foods can be altered depending on what we ate prior. For example, if you drink orange juice after you brush your teeth, what happens? The orange juice tastes horrible because it's been affected by the toothpaste. There's even this thing called the miracle berry. It can alter your food taste so that it makes sour food into sweet food for one hour. So the flavor of foods can be altered depending on what we are consuming. And studies have shown that eating large amounts of fast food and regularly drinking soda has an effect on our taste buds. It makes normal food and drinks taste bland. The reason why is when we consume fast food, when we consume a large amount of drink of soda, our taste receptors are being overloaded by sugar and by fats and by bad things, are, bad things for us. So it gets overloaded, and so when you switch to eating normal food, guess what? Everything tastes a little bit blander than you thought. In a way, eating excessively of these bad food robs you of fully enjoying other normal food. There's a similar effect in the Christian life. Partaking excessively in secular things will have the same effect on your spiritual palate. Just how a person can consume a bunch of junk food in Greece and how it will affect their normal food. If you consume a bunch of junk from the world, it will affect your palate for God's word. It will make God's word seem bland, and that may be the problem. Maybe we're consuming too much of the world. And that's why God's word seems so bland. We get filled with so much excitement from all of these shows that when we sit down for a sermon, it's not exciting for us anymore. We expect more glam, more, more action, you could say. There's an invitation for all of us here. We're all invited to taste the goodness of God. In Psalm 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Do you know firsthand the goodness of God? Have you tasted for yourself how good God is? And what I mean by this is sometimes people only know how good God is by other people's accounts. We know that God answers prayer because, not because our answers have been, our, our, answers have been, our prayers have been answered, but because we understand that other people have their, have their prayers answered. So first-hand accounts, we don't have any because we're not partaking in spiritual things. Many of us are watching from the sidelines, just observing the Christian life and those who are living it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's an invitation for all of us to taste and see how good God is. Let's say yes to that invitation. The second sense, touch. Turn with me to Joshua 7. And I'll just read these two verses quickly. Joshua 7, 20-21 says, 
And Achan, sorry, uh, and Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. And tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. Achan was not satisfied with what he had. This was the man who stole from, an enemy's, from a, the enemy's spoil. We don't know how wealthy Achan was. We don't know if he was poor or maybe he was average uh, living situation. But we do know that Achan was, was seeking for more. That's the reason why he grabbed the money or the, grabbed the, the spoils because he was, he was seeking for more uh, material gain. Even when it was commanded explicitly not to grab any treasure, to grab any spoils, he still did so. And what was the result of Achan's touchy-touchy of the, of the treasure? Resulted in Israel's defeat. Not only were they defeated, guess how many people died because of his sin? 36 men. 36 well-meaning soldiers were killed because he decided to touch treasure that it wasn't his. Not only that, him and his family were executed. Achan got his hands into troublesome things and he had to pay the price for it. And his sin even affected others. Similarly, what are you getting your hands into? What sins are you getting your hands involved in? Has your touch become numb? When you touch sin, does it still affect and, and cause you to have guilt? Physically speaking, there's a way that we can temporarily impair our sense of touch. If you sit cross-legged for a while, guess what? Your legs will fall asleep and get numb. If you sleep on your arm for like about an hour, when you wake up, your arm will not be functioning as it ought. It can't feel as much. People with nerve damage, they also suffer an impaired touch. They could be touching something incredibly hot with their hands, but they wouldn't wince in pain because they can't feel it. But guess what? Though they can't feel that pain, later on, it would still damage the hand. It's not like they are invincible and they're like Superman who can just take any pain now. Though they don't, they don't feel the pain, their body will feel it. Their body will get damaged. And similarly, though we are numb now, though we are getting our hands involved in sin, Though you are not, no longer feeling guilty from those sins, guess what? Sooner or later, just because you are numb to those sins, you will get hurt. You will get hurt. Just because you don't feel guilty about doing those sins anymore, you will get hurt. Entertain sin, and you keep entertaining it, God will notice. Keep your touch righteous. Don't be getting your hands involved in sin. The third one, smell. Genesis 27, 24 to, 20, uh, 24 to 27. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. And he said, Art thou my very son Esau? And he said, I am. And he said, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat. And he bought him wine, and he drank. And his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field 
which the Lord hath blessed. Because Isaac could tell his sons apart based on their scent, Jacob used that fact to trick his father. He made himself smell like his brother. He also cooked like his brother, or his, his uh, mom cooked like his brother, and he put hair on himself to, to emulate his brother, but he also deceived his father by mimicking his scent. Isaac was able to tell his children apart just on their smell alone. Olfaction, which is our, our sense of smell, apparently triggers the most powerful evo- emotions and memories, more so than all of our other senses. Now, I, I, at first I doubted that, how powerful our, our, our nose is, but I realized that if you put in front of me, for example, this is a very specific example, but if you put in front of me rotten Napa cabbage, you guys might not even know what Napa cabbage is, but it is a, it's a staple in Korean dishes. Anyways, working in Hanum, I have dealt with so much rotten cabbage that the smell of it will probably bring all the memories I have with the place, all of the memories that I ha- the, the, the bad memories that I have with that cabbage. That is how strong our sense of smell is. Metaphorically speaking, just like how, just how Isaac was able to tell apart his sons based on their scent, we should be able to understand and know the scent of our Father above. I've mentioned this already in the past point. We need to understand that behind all the blessings that we face is not, not because of our own doing. It's because God is behind those blessings. And we need to recognize that He is behind all of our blessings. When we get a raise or a bonus at work, don't think and compliment yourself and saying, oh, it's because I'm such a hard worker that I got this raise. And maybe you are a hard worker. But thank God. Thank God that he gave you that raise. You're so spiritually asleep that we no longer recognize the sense of God behind all of our precious blessings. Even when facing trials, we start blaming the world. We start destroying ourselves and completely self-destructing, not recognize the sense of the one who gave us those trials. In trials and in blessings, recognize that it is God that is behind those. If you recognize that God is behind your blessings, you will be ever thankful, always humble. If you recognize that God is always behind your trials, you will always be encouraged, you will always be joyful, and you will not destroy yourself. Recognize the sense of God in everything. Number four, sight. Matthew 9, 36 to 37. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. When you look upon those still headed to hell, are you moved with compassion? And this is one of my favorite phrases in the New Testament. Moved with compassion. Maybe it's a favorite of mine. Is because, maybe it's because I lack in this apartment. Maybe because it's my weakest area. And it's something that I, I always am inspired by when I see Christ's ministry. He was moved with compassion. When he saw the people who were desperate for help, what did Jesus do? He didn't turn a blind eye and turn the other direction. He helped them. He was moved with compassion to help. 
the seeing damn souls stir us to action. We have an opportunity. It's not like we don't have opportunities to serve and go soul winning. Even though this may not be door-to-door soul winning, we can still be involved in outreach. We can still be involved in flyering. We can still be involved in personal evangelism. Does our hearts get stirred when we see people who need salvation? Or have we chosen to turn a blind eye? If your sense of sight no longer sees those who are suffering and you ignore them and you focus on yourself, there is a heart problem. Jesus could never see a suffering individual and just move on like nothing happened. He preached. He traveled miles and miles on foot. He performed miracle after miracle, healing those who were sick, casting out demons into the night. He did all of this because he loved them and because he had compassion for them. He never turned a blind eye, even to the Pharisee Nicodemus or to the chief publican Zacchaeus. Christ was willing to help all. He didn't turn a blind eye. He saw the need and Christ always took the lead. How is your spiritual sight? When you see something that needs to be done, do you get involved? Or do you just pray and hope that somebody else will take that opportunity to serve? When you see somebody who needs the gospel, do you give it to them? Or do you just hope and pray that another Christian will meet them along, along their life someday? How is your spiritual sight? And lastly, I'll finish with this. Our hearing. This is the most important one, in my opinion. Our hearing. John 8, 43. Jesus asked this question. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. If you're spiritually fast asleep, you could be hearing me right now. My words, my sermon may be entering your ear. Maybe you're reading your Bible as well in the morning or whenever you do read it, maybe in a a scripture reading. Maybe you're reading it and it's not clicking. My sermon is not clicking. The Bible, your Bible reading is not clicking. And there's something wrong there. We're not receiving God's word because we're not listening to it. We're spiritually dozed off. We cannot hear God speaking to us. That is the reason why so many Christians can just sit in church, not caring at all about what is being said here. Maybe you're a level higher. There are those who can even remember the entire message. Maybe not the entire message, but they can remember the thrust of the preacher's message. But there's a higher level. Simply remembering a sermon is not the same as taking a truth from that sermon and applying it to your life to walk better in your Christian life. There's a, simple, there's a difference between hearing and actually listening and acting. How is your spiritual hearing? The Pharisees, more than all others at that time, the Pharisees heard Jesus preach countless of times. They saw many of the miracles he performed. Yet what was the group that never repented, the Pharisees. How can a group witness so much of Jesus' ministry yet never believe 
is because these Pharisees were physically awake and attentive, but they never had any intention of listening to God's word. They always had their own agenda in our mind. That is possible within us. We have our own agenda when we are listening to a sermon. How is your spiritual hearing? We went through all of these five. Touch, smell, sight, hearing. How are all your senses? Are they bound up? And I end with this story. Race car driver Dale Earnhardt was known for being so calm before races. So calm that he occasionally would even take a nap while waiting for the race to start. So he would literally be waiting for the race to start for the go-ahead, and he would be sleeping and taking a nap. While other drivers would have a pulse rate of 100 to 120 before a race, his would commonly be less than 60. But on August 31st, 1997 of the Southern 500 race, Earnhardt unintentionally took napping to a dangerous new level. At the start of the race, Earnhardt fell asleep at the wheel and went into a semi-conscious state, but he kept on driving. When he reached the first turn, he hit the wall, but he kept on going. And at the second turn, he again hit the wall, harder this time. He continued slowly around the track for two laps, looking for his pit, but unable to find it. Finally, with some guidance from his crew, he was able to pull off the track. Later on, when he was, after he was finished being evaluated, Dale Earnhardt would say he remembered nothing of this event. Frightening but true that it is possible for a while to drive over 100 miles an hour and yet be asleep. In the same way, we can be busily racing through life, our eyes seemingly open, our hands on the wheel, our foot pressing on the gas pedal, yet spiritually asleep. And sooner or later, though, the trouble begins. Forgetting to do God's work, having your five spiritual senses bound up, are, in my opinion, the two great indicators that you are not an awake Christian. And we need to wake up. If you want to change the world, if you want to change Surrey, we start with Surrey first. If you want to change our, our landscape, or the spiritual landscape of our nation, we need Christians who are awake. The world doesn't need dull, lifeless Christians who look and act like they were being forced to be a Christian, or that they had no other choice but to be a Christian. We need Christians who are fully awake, fully aware, fully alert, and 100% enthusiastic to serve God and to serve others. It is when we are spiritually awake that we'll experience the greatest joys, the greatest victories and blessings. No one makes memories when they're sleeping, right? Our best memories are made when we are awake. What we do with everything, what we do with our life outside of the bed. That's the memories that we make. And similarly, if you're spiritually falling asleep or you are asleep, you'll never experience great joy victories and blessings. But I guarantee that if you rise up from your spiritual slumber, there's a whole host of blessings to be had. I'll end with this verse. Verses, and turn with me here. Ephesians 5, 14 to 16. Ephesians 5, 14 to 16, and after I read the verse, I'm done.
And I'll read verses 14 to 16, and it says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Redeeming the time. We can't afford to be spiritually asleep anymore. There's a world to be reached. There are so many works that need to be done, and so few laborers. We need to redeem the time, and we need to spiritually wake up. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word. Thank you.